and welcome to the Traveling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects have shaped our world. Hello. So this episode, we're talking about the weird and wonderful world of wax. A few months ago, Caroline and I caught up with Laura Engel, who is a professor of English literature at Duquesne University in the US. Laura's incredibly impressive range of work spans muffs to celebrity, but we chatted to her about her fabulous work on wax. So Laura wrote a chapter on wax for material literacy in 18th century Britain, which is a book that I edited with Chloe Wigston Smith. So I was especially excited to hear what Laura had to say about this fascinating material and had already had a bit of a sneak peek. But first, let's recap what we actually know about wax in this period and what we've been reading about this week. So I'm so interested in this topic that I know honestly nothing about uh, and I can't wait to actually listen to the interview. So for me wax seems like this really strange um, sort of uncanny material so it's something that can be melted and reshaped, it can be used to keep things secret, to copy other objects and perhaps something that I find so creepy to replicate human flesh. But I guess, <laughs> but I guess the most obvious place to start is with letter writing uh, and the ways that wax was used to seal correspondence in the 18th and 19th centuries. So this is probably something that we've all experienced, uh, but whenever I go to an archive to read the letters of the people that I'm working on, I often take for granted that most of the letters still have their wax seals attached uh, and most of them are still really, you know, sort of red, vibrant and glossy colour. Um, but I've never really stopped to think about this before until I was reading letters from the 1780s uh, in the John Rylands Library at the University of Manchester. And these are between the courtier Mary Hamilton and her friend, the Duchess of Portland. And the letters cover all sorts of topics, but many of them are talking about the Duchess's museum. So she collected everything from ceramics to butterflies, shells, dried flowers, Renaissance paintings, you name it, and she collected it. So something that I found um, the Duchess was particularly fond of was ancient intaglios. And these are really small items. Usually I think they're gemstones um, and they're carved with figures from mythology or perhaps um, figures like emperors, gods, goddesses, that sort of thing. And these were really popular in the 18th and 19th centuries and were often used uh, to make impressions in melted wax on a letter as a way of sealing it and keeping the contents private. And it took me a while to realise that actually the Duchess was sealing some of her own correspondence with the intaglios from her collection, which is, of course, interesting for all sorts of reasons, but especially because her museum was sold at auction in 1786 and doesn't actually exist today. So really, these wax seals are sort of like tantalising little traces of the material collection. That's so fascinating, Maddie. I think the ephemerality of wax which is like you say kind of makes it like the body itself is so kind of fascinating um so i've been like you maddie i've been interested in wax and its history for a really long time but i also know almost nothing about it um but one of my earliest kind of art historical memories from when i was a graduate student is attending an art association for art history conference session on wax in the 18th and 19th centuries 
and I just became completely obsessed. So there was papers on medical models, on um, figures of um, the royal families um, during the time of revolution. I just kind of became entranced. So wax is something I'm absolutely determined to eventually return to in my work. And it does pop up in some interesting ways in some of the things that I deal with. So in the famous Royal Academy advert soliciting works for submission to the summer exhibition, it explicitly says, note no copies, whatever, drawings from pictures, needlework, artificial flowers, cut paper, shell works, models in colored wax, or any imitations of painting will be received. So wax, like almost everything that I'm interested in, is part of a group of materials that are devalued by their association with women's work. And indeed, there were many brilliant women artists working with wax in the 18th century, including people like Catherine Andras, who made tiny sculptural portraits in the medium. And in 1802, she was appointed modeler in wax uh, to Queen Charlotte. Oh, I love this, Freya, particularly this idea about the role of women engaging and crafting wax, which was presumably quite a cheap everyday material that they could get access to in comparison maybe with some other artistic materials, perhaps. I'm not too sure, but I have to admit, um, it's only really recently that I've started to think a bit more about wax. Uh, I've become really interested in, in its materiality and Actually, one of the reasons for this has really been the recent uh, ongoing uh, pandemic and the lack of access, especially for students, to the materials that they would normally work with. So I do a lot with students from the Royal College of Art in London and at, at quite a recent work in progress exhibition earlier this year, there was a, one ceramics and glass student um, whose work's really interesting called Unuson. And she basically had to transform her entire practice as a ceramics artist because she can't access a studio at the moment. So instead, she started to adapt her practice and is now using beeswax as her primary material, which I think is really fascinating, actually, this kind of um, flexibility of shifting your practice. But she's essentially created these ornate candelabras that are made completely from wax. And then she's adding wicks into them that she lights. So essentially the wax melts and burns away and shifts into something that's almost kind of half living, half dying and creates these incredibly huge um, kind of yellow beeswax candle candelabra sculptures, which are fascinating. And there's something almost performative, almost emotional actually about watching lit beeswax flicker and melt and disintegrate. But actually it's fulfilling its function and so for me I've been thinking so much more about the versatility that wax offers in conjunction with other materials but of course it's also a material that deserves to be recognized in its own right and I think for me that was something that really came across from our chat with Laura. we are extremely excited to welcome our guest Professor Laura Engel so welcome Laura. We are so delighted to have you on the podcast and I know that we are all big fans of your work. Today we're going to be talking about wax and to me I've always thought of wax as this really kind of ubiquitous material in the 18th century in practical objects so we're used to talking about it and kind of tandem with tallow in candles so it's kind of all around people but in a very kind of everyday way 
but it's maybe less common for us to think about it as an artistic medium. So I wonder if we could start, Laura, by asking you what first brought you to wax and how it fits within your research. Well, first, I just want to say thank you so much uh, for having me. This is really uh, exciting. Um, and when I was thinking about what drew me to wax, uh, it occurred to me that I've always been interested in thinking about multimodal strategies for image making and particularly for women. Um, and I think it's important to note, and we'll probably talk about this throughout, uh, that there were many women artists associated with wax and waxworks. And so my first book, Fashioning Celebrity, explored how late 18th century actresses used memoirs and portraits and theatrical roles to shape their public personas, which is what drew me to muffs, but that's an entirely different <laughs> podcast. Um, my muff-obsessed detour uh, led me to consider how accessories related to actresses and how actresses operated as accessories themselves. And I became really interested in imagining how traces of past performances might connect to representations of objects, but also to archival objects themselves. And I began thinking a lot about performance theory and its relationship to archival theory. So in my recent book, uh, Women, Performance, and the Material of Memory, The Archival Tourist, um, it's a project that considers the role of scholars as tourists in the archives. And I propose that the performance of archival research is related to the experience of tourism, where an individual immerses herself in a foreign environment, relating to and analyzing visual and sensory materials through embodiment and enactment. The archival tourist is part of the scene of research and has agency in recreation of the past at the same time that she remains separated from the materials because they are always unalterably foreign. So in the book, I'm particularly interested in archival materials that invoke technologies of presence or traces of embodied experiences, such as pocket diaries, portraits, silhouettes, and waxworks. This is what led me to waxworks. Um, these are also items that are connected to uh, tourism. And of course, writing about wax also led me back to questions of celebrity and the multimodal dynamics of image making. And I also talk about wax in the epilogue for a book called Intimacy and Celebrity in 18th Century Literary Culture. And that piece is about a scene set in Madame Tussauds in a very early Catherine Hepburn film called A Woman Rebels from 1930. Uh, and she actually has sex in the wax museum. Uh, in this movie, although obviously we don't see that scene, but the uh, she has a little assignation in Madame Tussauds. Um, so I write about that as a kind of really odd, ironic scene of public intimacy. Oh, wow. So you've been incredibly prolific. Yeah. Well, well, writing about wax begets writing about wax because it's so, <laughs> because it's so fascinating. Um, it's, it, you know, it's a material that draws us um, to thinking about the idea of likeness and mimicry and uh, embodiment and um, repetition and that eerie uncanny feeling uh, where you're standing next to something and you don't know whether it's alive or not is something that we can trace back to the 18th century. I, I love this idea of sort of sexy wax as well with the Madame Tussauds and in the movie that's really interesting. Do you think in some ways that wax is as a material often left behind or an afterthought or as Serena said at the, at the start this idea of candle there's the everyday and it blends into the background but what you're talking about is wax at the forefront 
as something performative, but also exciting, but there's a sense of illusion and changes of real life representation. I, I, I love many things that you just said. I think what's so fascinating about wax is that it represents all these paradoxes at the same time, right? It's, it's, it's ephemeral, but it's permanent. It's fluid, but it's solid. It's alive, but it's dead. Um, it's authentic, but it's constructed. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons, it also represents a kind of a distinction between low and high art. Um, most waxworks today are considered to be kind of kitschy items, right? The waxworks that we're familiar with, you know, in museum, in Madame Tussauds around the world, but other, in other wax museums. But there are actually, you know, really interesting uh, contemporary artists who use wax in their work, uh, Dwayne Hansen, to name, to, to name one. Um, but I, I think that, you know, originally wax, uh, because it was such an easily accessible material, and because young girls uh, often sort of, you know, used wax to, to make um, devotionary sculpture or, um, you know, used wax to make small uh, dolls. Um, it was a, a, a material that was very accessible and easy to use and also easy to use in private spaces. So you didn't have to have a big studio. You didn't have to have an easel. You didn't have to uh, pay for expensive paints or materials. You certainly didn't have to have sculptural materials. I think that's why there's some few women sculptors in the 18th century, because, you know, hauling a giant hunk of marble into your house, how are you going to do that? So I think wax represents kind of both the idea of craft work and sort of private, um, you know, uh, making of materials uh, versus a very, very sophisticated process of representation that Madame Tussauds was trained to do and then became a real expert at. Um, so one of the things that I go back to again and again with her work is the idea of what does it mean to think of her as an artist, not just mm -hmm. as a brand. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's very much how to most modern people she appears, that there's this disconnect perhaps between the, the brand that we see at the, the Madame Tussauds experiences versus thinking of her as an actual artist, thinking of her as a creator, thinking of her as the kind of the pioneering originator of this idea um, or of this practice. I mean, one of the also the interesting things about thinking about wax and its connection to celebrity is that, you know, now in a Madame Tussauds, there's a whole collective collection of people who make the statues. So it's a, it's a very complicated process that involves some very skilled uh, artisans and also computer tech techniques and digitized photography. Um, but no one artist gets credit for a figure. And you can kind of trace that back to, uh, to Madame Tussauds in the sense that she was never credited specifically and sort of um, continuously with making her figures. It was all about the idea that the figures sort of emerged from the ether in these beautifully, beautifully lifelike casts without anybody actually taking the time to really craft them. And as to that kind of human-esque, pseudo-human quality that they have. Absolutely. It's almost like a Frankenstein's monster situation. You know? Yes, there's almost an eeriness, isn't there? What is it, do you think, particularly the connections between wax and celebrity in the 18th century and why wax, as opposed to any other medium, is, is used in that way? I think the, the really interesting thing about, one of the interesting things about celebrity is the idea of um, public intimacy. Um, and we want to also um, understand them as ordinary people. Um, so the idea that an image of a celebrity is very lifelike in wax 
and it's three-dimensional. Um, so unlike in other museums and other exhibitions where you have to stand away from the artwork, you have to look at the artwork on the wall or you're walking around the sculpture, in the waxworks, you're always uh, encouraged to get right up close. And even today, in Madame Tussauds today, you can take a selfie with the waxwork, you can, you know, you can almost touch it. And I think that that same kind of experience of proximity and the uncanny idea that you are next to something that looks exactly like a person who is still alive or dead, it creates a kind of embodied experience for the viewer that's really, really unique. It also, in Madame Tussauds' case, allowed people to sort of enter into historical events and moments that they otherwise would have just read about. So she did become famous for doing death masks of Marie Antoinette and the whole crew that was slaughtered in the revolution. And so people going to uh, wax museums to kind of understand what was unfolding uh, in, in historical time, it allowed them to kind of theatrically participate in these, um, in these uh, occurrences in a way that made it very immediate, like a performance that is not actually full of actors, but is staged to create a sense of um, mood and, and ominousness and reality. I really like what you say about, um, you know, that kind of bodily intimacy with the waxworks and that you can interact with them. I know that I have been to Madame Tussauds and made slightly rude gestures towards the waxwork <laughs> Johnson, for example. <laughs> so that's definitely some, something that I think people continue to, to do and, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you're, you're performing your own, in this case, political ideas through the way that you're interacting with these waxworks as well. Yeah, I mean, there's also really interesting things about how the shows were curated and staged both in the 18th century and today. So the idea, first of all, like which figures were put next to each other. Um, so, you know, was Sarah Siddons standing next to Marie Antoinette and what did that mean? Um, and then, you know, today there's usually um, a downstairs uh, version, which is more, you know, horror filled, you know, the Jack the Ripper exhibit, which is one of the things that is the main attraction is down in the underworld. And then the upstairs is more your sort of political figures and your Hollywood figures and your, um, your current celebrities. So there's a kind of, there's a lot of interesting sort of ideological messages in how these things are curated. There are actually some very compelling information about the way Madame Tussauds set up her exhibits or the way her, her children later on set up the exhibits in uh, catalogs of the exhibits which are on Google, uh, which basically go by room and have descriptions of all of the figures. So you can read, you know, and sort of make little maps yourself to think about where, where figures were and how people encountered them. It's really interesting to think that Madame Tussauds was so keen to get that right as well, that she was actually really trying to visualize that and the way in which the viewer would walk around and how they would approach and who they would approach first and perhaps next. And that dialogue that's created there, I think is really, really interesting. I remember a few years ago, the um, Life Like exhibition at Met Royer, uh, they had some wax sculpture in that and they had some work by people like Dwayne Hansen, but then they also had more historical examples and um, automata pieces and things like this. And it was really interesting with the different types of materials you were seeing that I did approach the wax just slightly different to the sculpture or the porcelain piece. And I've never really reflected on that. So I think you're definitely onto something about this sort of more embodied experience for the viewer when you're confronted with this 
real life representation through wax. Uh, that that show is just completely brilliant and the catalog for that show is completely brilliant and I actually talk at the end of the book in the epilogue I talk both about that show and also about a show called Blackout uh, which was at the National Gallery um, about silhouettes uh, and the craft of the silhouette and that show was running concurrently with Like Life which was really interesting because it was two shows that <clears throat> featured um, materials that were highlighted in the 18th century and then were now recreated and manipulated by contemporary artists. So the Blackout Show also had Kara Walker and several other contemporary artists that use uh, the silhouette. Both shows were also about race and racial politics. Um, Wax is a very interestingly white and luminous material. Um, and But there's also a very famous and important African-American wax museum. Um, and it, and it, the, the Like Life show was very much about the idea of sculpture and color. Um, and the thesis of the show was actually that color has was originally attached to many sculptures that we've only just sort of recently sort of ideologically started to think of sculpture as um, emanating a kind of whiteness. Mm -hmm. uh, not only because the color faded away from many of many of the ancient statues that actually had color, um, but because we've we decided that we are going to attach these kinds of glorified ideas of whiteness to high art. Um, so both shows tried to deconstruct those racial politics. Um, and I also talk about the fact that, um, you know, even today, there's a lot of really interesting backlash about, <clears throat> excuse me, wax figures. Um, there was the controversy about Beyonce's figure not being black enough, which was very interesting. Then there was another contrast uh, a thing about uh, Rebel Wilson's uh, body size that she was uh, too that she was too large or not large enough. I can't remember which to look that up. Um, but think you know that sort of the idea that audiences uh, want to imagine their wax figures in particular kinds of ways is really uh, fascinating. And says a lot about the idea of wax's authenticity. Yeah. yeah. What are you creating? Are you creating an exact copy or are you saying something extra to that like you might expect a, a marble or a stone sculpture to do? You sort of expect that to have all these extra elements and is there something different going on with wax or, you know, there's something very, there's a strange tension there, I think, between this, this concept of authenticity and and where authenticity is sort of allowed to dissolve in a lot of other artworks. I think that's such a great point. I also think that you know, many of the techniques that Madame Tussauds used to craft her own portrait were techniques that other women artists were using to represent themselves in, in paint. So the idea that wax gets this sort of label as um, a creation of an authentic thing, right? Because you're, you're using casts and molds but not a, 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 you know, an artwork that has, is multimodal uh, and has, you know, uses kind of idealized forms of representation to perform a, a self. Um, I think that is still going on in waxworks, um, particularly in Madame Tussauds self-portrait. Um, so as you mentioned earlier, you recently wrote a fabulous chapter about wax and Madame Tussauds for uh, an edited volume that I co-edited with Chloe Wigston smith called Material Literacy in 18th Century Britain. Getting in a little bit of uh, self-promotion there as well as promotion of Laura's work. Um, so I know your chapter um, 
quite intimately now and in that you introduce this concept of material legacies so could you tell us a little bit more about that well i was thinking about the idea of material legacies connected to the idea that all material objects echo other material objects so that everything is related to something that came before it or something that is like it um, so that you can trace lots of different aspects of a material object through uh, different particularities of it and it will echo a range of other things so it create it kind of creates its own exhibit in and of itself if you think about tracing all of the different kinds of threads that go into one object but also uh, this idea of, mater of material legacies uh, disrupting uh, linear time. Uh, we've talked a lot about the idea that these embodied experiences go from the past to the present back to the past, that objects that have uh, emanate kind of technologies of presence like waxworks are often really uncanny because they stop an idea of uh, time uh, because the uh, the image looks lifelike or in the case of photographs of waxworks you're seeing a photograph of something that looks real but is not real and in the case of Madame Tussauds self-portrait the earlier one it no longer exists so you're seeing a photograph of something that looks real that actually is not real and actually no longer exists but only exists in the image of the photograph so that kind of disrupts your sense of time also different people have experience with objects at different periods of time and their experiences with that object um, are connected in different kinds of really interesting ways that disrupt the idea of the sort of beginning, middle, and end for an object. I'm also really interested in the idea of material legacies in terms of self-fashioning. I think that, you know, the idea of self-representation, especially for women in the 18th century, um, had to do with adopting various av available models of accepted and attractive um, image making. So that that connects so that any kind of self-portrait in the 18th century or any kind of artwork also connects, that has to do with image making or the self, connects to other kinds of practices of image making so that there's a material legacy there. I was also interested in the idea of how material legacies relate to maternal legacies, especially for women artists. Um, and I talk about this in the chapter with Madame Tussauds creating um, waxworks of her children for her exhibit. Uh, and also in terms of the ways that um, very famous contemporary French artists in the 18th century, like Elizabeth Viget Lebrun, uh, became famous for making pictures of her children uh, and then also depicting Marie Antoinette, the most kind of famous uh, famous woman of the day with her own children. Um, so there's a lot of very interesting legacies there. And then finally, um, I'm interested in the relationship between uh, material legacies and women artists. So the idea of women artists making art about other women. And in the chapter, I call that a sapphic legacy. And what I mean by that is the idea that um, there's a network and I'm still interested in this, and I'm still writing a lot about this, actually. <laughs> There's a network of women creating art about other women that um, separates itself from uh, the male gaze um, and kind of revises uh, the Pygmalion myth so that the creator and the object are no longer, it's no longer a gender dynamic. And it's, it's a kind of, it's a more, um, it's, it's a different kind of a network. And I think that these are often legacies and networks that we don't pay attention to or that are not really 
distinctly archived, there are things that you have to highlight and put together and think about. And material culture, um, the similarities between things, but also the production of things allows us to look at these legacies in really particular ways. I think it's fascinating to think that there's almost this kind of acknowledgement amongst women artists that traditional forms of record making, so all the the stuff that historians at least are used to used to looking at is not going to give them immortality if you like is not going to make them remembered and that these uh so wax and other forms of artwork allow a kind of a new way into that material immortality and and memory and and continuing to sort of have an afterlife in a material form which i think is fascinating absolutely and i you know, originally that's why I got interested in this idea of performance in the archives or the idea of sort of ephemeral traces of things connecting other things, because you can't just go to the archive and just find those narrative connections kind of staring you in the face. You have to really think about um, objects and space and place and time, and then also do some creative curating of your own as archival tourists, put things together and make meaning out of them to suggest the idea of connection. Do you think in terms of the legacy and wax as an ephemeral material, have you come across kind of examples of the legacy not surviving where actually really there should be much more wax? today that perhaps has been melted down or lost or destroyed over the years because it hasn't be, been seen as a form of high art. All the time. All the time. And it's, it's you know, the history of wax. I think it's it's either Marjan Storks or Roberta Panzanelli. But uh, she writes that wax, the history of wax is a history of disappearance um, because so many things have not survived. And because we probably, yes, as with many objects associated with women, uh, you know, including letters and diaries and, you know, uh, garments and, you know, all kinds of things that are gone. Wax works um, don't survive usually. Many of Madame Tussauds wax works are continuously melted down uh, so that when celebrities get you know, not famous or not interesting anymore. They could be shelved or destroyed in favor of, you know, the new flavor of the moment. So in that way, kind of the history of wax and reappearance and disappearance and what we're interested in is also very tied to the idea of the vicissitudes of celebrity culture. You know, what do we want to be uh, surrounded by in the moment? Um, and, you know, I think Leo Brody in his PMLA uh, essay about celebrity talks about going to Madame Tussauds at the end. Uh, and he talks about walking by a statue of Madonna and somebody not knowing who Madonna was. So, I mean, you know, it's that kind of thing where like when we talk to our students and we try to bring up icons from the past and they're like, who? So this is very connected to the ephemerality of, of wax. And also for male artists too. I mean, there were male artists working in wax. I'm just more interested in the female ones. <laughs> Yeah, I'm also just thinking about the process of wax and other art form and art production, for example, with porcelain. So often wax is used as a modeling and then it would have been used to create a plaster biscuit mold as a sort of prototype for a larger reproduction. But then it kind of gets forgotten, but it is part of the aesthetic process. But I think that's a really important point. And I think it's also Roberta Panzanelli that says that wax retains memory, that it's a, it's a medium that retains memory, which is really fascinating. It's a medium that retains memory and also 
sometimes gets destroyed in the process of the making of something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is kind of, it is kind of indicative of labor wax often, mm-hmm. um, or of, you know, steps that are invisible in the making of something else. I think it's fascinating. A lot of the materials that particularly women turn to were, as we said earlier, these sorts of things that were just around them. So wax being mm-hmm. this ubiquitous thing that it's easy to get hold of when you can't get hold of marble. And that that, in itself turns that like its reusability is what leads it to be used again in the future you know it, it is destroyed to be reused it's not destroyed for the sake of destroying it in the same way that with sort of textiles and needlework you you reuse fabrics to make a new garment not for the sake of destroying it so it's it's almost like there's this kind of genealogy within the thing that it gets made and melted down and made and melted down and made and melted down and and it sort of still has somehow within it um the kind of the echoes of all of those past lives that it's experienced yeah i think that's such a great point i also think that interestingly the malleability of it allows the artist to make mistakes and then redo it make mistakes and then redo it that repetition and revision so we've reached the point in our podcast where we ask our guests to bring along an object or an artwork of particular interest so laura Can you please describe for us what object you've brought along and how it connects to your research? And the listeners will be putting up a picture of this on our social media. Well, I've brought along, and I've been talking about this, I think, the whole time, but I brought along this uh, very fascinating uh, image of a young Madame Tussaud. It's a photograph of a self-portrait from probably the turn of the century. And it it says, it, it's labeled Madame Tussaud at the age of 24 in 1784. And what's, there are many, many, many fascinating things about this photograph. First of all, this wax figure does not exist anymore. It is, it is no longer existent. However, the photograph, uh, which looks very much like a 19th century carte de visite postcard, uh, which is something that was used to popularize uh, celebrities and also aristocrats and also notable people. Um, Many people had their photograph posed to have their photograph taken. And these photographs were uh, disseminated and circulated and people used them in their own personal albums and went to shops and bought them. Um, So the fact that Madame Tussaud was on something that looks like a carte de visite at the turn of the century means that she was famous or that people wanted to look at this image of her as a special image, which I think is is very interesting. But the the photograph is a very eerie kind of archive of an archive because it's a photograph of something that looks real but isn't real. Uh, It's a photograph of something that no longer exists. There is no way to precisely date this, but I convinced that it did exist because there is a catalog entry uh, from Madame Tussauds catalog in 1823 where she describes the figure as the artist, you know, a figure representing the artist herself. This is different from a figure that she does uh, before the end of her life in the late 1840s. That figure still exists and is reproduced all over Madame Tussauds and it's of her as like a spectacled little old lady. This figure is a lovely young woman, but her costume is really strange. Uh, it's, it's multimodal <laughs> and very complicated. We also don't know in the photograph whether or not um, someone came along and retouched her. We can potentially assume that these were 
garments that maybe look like the original statue, but we don't know. She's wearing a dress that looks a little bit like uh, portraits, self-portraits of uh, Vigée Lebrun and uh, images of Marie Antoinette from the late 18th century. It, she is, it's kind of like a chemise dress and she's holding a sculpting tool in her hand, which is an indication that she is, of course, an artist. And she has a very much like an early portrait of uh, a choker in an earlier portrait by Francois Drouet of Marie Antoinette. That exact choker is also on a vintage photograph of a wax figure of Marie Antoinette from the same era. So was Madame Tussaud thinking of different kinds of images of famous uh, late 18th century women in creating her self-image? I would argue probably. What was the point of doing a sculpture of herself at age 20, 24, potentially to sell her brand, potentially to declare herself as a, as a uh, artist in her own right? But it's, it's a beautiful and very haunting image. Uh, I think it's fascinating as well, as you say, this, this relationship between the wax figure and her clothing, which is, of course, something that appeals to me about the, the different Like we were talking earlier about how with with the wax in modern day, Sword, you have all different hands that are working on it, all these different people's artistic visions. And it's interesting to think. Well, when Madame Tussauds was working on things like this well, and indeed the different sort of versions of it that may have changed over time, that there are so many different hands and, and skills and, and making abilities that have gone into the creation of, of this one thing. And indeed photography as well, because the photograph itself is, is part of that. Yeah. And the photograph stages a moment in time that is also now lost. I mean, she's in some sort of turn of the century exhibition space and she seems to be sort of leaning on a couch. I don't know whether she was posed in some sort of scene and there's this very interesting brocaded uh, wall hanging in the back. So again, that really interesting example of disruption of linear time. So was this a figure that came from the late 18th century and then was transported or saved to the late 19th century and then photographed? You know, Madame Tussaud also could not have been photographed in her own lifetime because photography was not a thing. Uh, until the mid-19th century. So all of these different technologies collide to create this really kind of um, eerie, emanating uh, piece. You know, if she made this, um, she made this photograph also before she came to London in the late 1780s. She also packed it on a crate and put it on a ship and, you know, sailed across the channel with it. So, I mean, there's that idea of, you know, the impossibility of things surviving. For me, I think it's a sculpting tool that she is definitively saying, this is who I am, this is me, it's my agency as an artist, as a sculptor, and I'm using wax. And I, I think it's such a wonderful image and such a pity that we don't know where it is. It, have you been able to trace when it was last known to still exist, the actual uh, wax sculpture? No, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And um, one of the things I find fascinating about it is that it, it's an image that's owned by commercial image banks like Getty and Bridgman. And people use the image all the time. It's the cover of Kate Barrage's biography of Madame Tussauds, which talks about her, her, you know, kind of 
life as life and her creation of celebrity culture, her participation in it. It's a very good book. But she doesn't really credit the image. So there's this idea that we've got this image, everyone's using it, but no one talks about it because there's not a lot of information about it. So that brings up a lot of really interesting questions about what do you do as a scholar when you have a piece of archival evidence that cannot be specifically traced, that cannot be definitively um, uh, described. Uh, you have to use creative assumptions and you have to use various kinds of expertise to put together a plausible idea of what's happening. But it's a very interesting conundrum, this idea of what to do when we don't know. And it's taken on this whole sort of additional digital life now, I suppose, on things like Bridgman. It's sort of circulating, I'm sure it's circulating all over Pinterest and things like that too. So exactly. it's continuing to go into different types of, of digital archive. Exactly. So it has, you know, it has an afterlife of its own. And that's in the chapter I talk about the, the relationship between the afterlife of this image and the afterlife of images of Marie Antoinette, which are everywhere. Um, and I talk about a photograph um, by uh, Hiro Sugimoto of Norma, Norma Shearer playing Marie Antoinette in her famous uh, 19... 40 something role and it's of her in Marie Antoinette costume looking at a mirror and his photograph of that wax image is also a similarly sort of uncanny repetition of an image on screen a frozen image of something on screen that no longer exists. Um, so I think that that's all that we have time for today so thank you Laura for a really fascinating um, and exciting discussion as well I think that not just in relation to wax, but more generally how we think about material culture. There's so many exciting things that are coming out of um, your work. So for listeners, are you able to quickly tell us where they can find out more about you and more about your research? Oh, thank you so much, Serena. This was fantastic. So uh, you can find uh, my new book, Women Performance in the Material of Memory, The Archival Tourist. It's out from Palgrave. You can also get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. I have recently co-curated an exhibition with Amelia Rouser uh, called Artful Nature, Fashion and Theatricality. Uh, and that is at the Walpole Library at Yale University. No one can see it because of the pandemic, but there is a really nice online tour on the Lewis Walpole Library website and also some taped material uh, that Amelia and I did about the exhibit. So if you want to uh, take a perusal of that. Um, I also have an, a forthcoming chapter coming on 18th century actresses and material culture, which, which talks about a lot of the issues that we just talked about today. And actually it's out in a book called The Palgrave Handbook of the History of Women on Stage, uh, which is edited by Jan Seamel Sewell and Claire Smelt. You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.